Agency. Welcome. I'm your host, Mike Gaston. I'm a brand and marketing strategist, and this podcast is all about the story of private business. I'm here today with Bob Confer. He's the owner and president, along with his uh, sister of Confer Plastics. Bob, welcome to The Currency. Thanks for having me as a guest. Oh, it's a pleasure. I appreciate you making the time. So we're here at your offices and facility. You're based in North Tonawanda, New York. And for our global and even uh, countrywide listeners, that is, um, I'll say a suburb, but that's not really true, but it's north of Buffalo, Buffalo, New York, correct? I always like to say it's smack dab between Buffalo and Niagara Falls. There you go. That's a fantastic way to, and a lot of people from all over the world know Niagara Falls. Yes. Used to be the honeymoon capital of the world, I want to say at one point. Still get millions of visitors a year. Yeah. Yeah. You know, whenever we have friends or family that come visit from out of town or overseas, we have to take a trip to Niagara Falls. It's just on the list. Yes. So, well, thank you for having me in today, Bob, and being willing to talk about your company. I mentioned at the open that you're the, the president and owner, along with your sister. And what I meant to say, I should clarify, is that you're the president of the company, but you and your sister are both owners of the business and you're third generation owners, correct? Correct. Okay. So let's talk a little bit about the business, Confer Plastics. What do you guys do? And um, and a little bit about the history. Who founded it and how, how did you get to be in the position that you're in today? I like to tell people what we do is a little bit of magic. Whereas most manufacturers take something large, cut it down to make something small. We're taking tiny little plastic beads, melting them down, turn them into big products. And the technology we use is blow molding, which is the same concept as a milk bottle, Pepsi bottle. Okay. But we use it for consumer goods. So we're having things engineered into it, whether it's ribs, kiss-offs, things like that. So we can make structural panels, we can make kayaks, we can make swimming pool ladders. So it's not necessarily a truly hollow product as most blow molding would be when people start thinking of the bottles and things like that. So it's a really diverse product line. 65% of what we do is proprietary in nature, and that would be focusing on pool and spa and that's all Confer branded, except for the spa materials. So when it's Confer branded, if somebody has an all-plastic swimming pool ladder step in their swimming pool, there's a very good chance we made that. And we've been making those since the 1970s. And it's a weird little niche, but it's a really good one for us. Looking at what we did last year, between ladders and steps, we made 80,000 means of people getting in and out of swimming pools. 80,000 means, meaning 80,000 units, units yes. went out of here that help people get in and out of their pools. So you are, you are facilitating summertime fun. Yes. Here at Confer. <laughs> and between that and what we do for custom work, and custom work, uh, we do a lot of kayaks. So okay. we tell people that our primary focus here is getting people in the water and on the water. So it's a lot of good times that we're manufacturing here. That's awesome. Now, the kayak line, you say custom, is that more, you're doing that for a different, that's not a Confer brand, it sounds no. like. So the, the ladders are a Confer brand, but then you're doing contract manufacturing. Is that accurate? Or is yes. There, okay. okay. And uh, that company uh, comes to us. We manufacture the kayaks for them, and then they rebrand the different molds or put different stickers on there, and they'll sell them at different stores such as Dick's Sporting Goods, Walmart, wow. and Tractor Supply. Wow. So you're all over the country with your products. Yes. That's amazing. Now, how many people work here at the facility? It's a good-sized facility. It's right now, we're square feet. 195 people. Okay. And do you have a lot of seasonal swing, or is it pretty straightforward? We uh, have a seasonal swing right now. Okay. We're down just a little bit because we're waiting for kayaks to ramp up again because okay. they're labor intensive. It takes anywhere from 7 to 11 people to put a kayak together. So even though it takes just that one fella to get it out of the machine and trim up the body of that kayak, we do that full assembly. So we can get 
a full kayak done in about three, three and a half minutes. Are you kidding me? Wow. From pellets going into a piece of equipment all the way through the line? Yes. And that's a marked change from what it used to be. The old way of making kayaks and plastics was rotomolding, which we don't do here. Okay. Rotomolding, they're basically throwing that molten plastic inside of a clamshell that spins, hence the name rotomolding. So the material's like adhering to the walls, like centrifugal forces pushing the plastic out? Exactly. Okay. And that means of making a kayak was typically 40 minutes to make one kayak. Okay. And we're doing it in under four minutes. Low molding. Interesting. So three and a half minutes, and that, and you've got some structural aspects to yours. So if we're looking like at a plastic water bottle or a Pepsi bottle, it's just a hollow, it's like a balloon. Mm-hmm. But you're adding things like ribs. You mentioned a kiss-off. I don't even know what that is. But you've got engineered elements that give it strength yes. and rigidity. And a kiss-off would be when we're taking the two sides of that hollow body, welding together in various little areas, kiss-offs or tack-offs, and that weld would create structural integrity and make them almost indestructible. The best way that I can always compare it is people are always familiar with uh, the Bilco doors. It would be on a basement door. Sure. They had been made primarily out of steel for decades. The Bilco company had us design one out of plastic. There was less deflection on our plastic than there was on the steel. What do you mean by deflection? If somebody put a weight test on it or people walked Uh, on that cellar door. So it actually ended up being far more powerful than steel. Interesting. Wow. And it's all just through engineering, just being clever with with how you structure, create the structure. Yes. And then there was another unit which really speaks to how strong we can make things. There was a a little sphere, not necessarily a little sphere, but it's probably uh, the size of a uh, small refrigerator that we were making. You would tie these together, put them in the ocean, put them in a lake, and tying them together with a steel cable would create a break wall, where instead of having a typical break wall where you're just piling up rocks, mm-hmm. what if you wanted something that was environmentally friendly so the water could still pass through so you could get the fish to migrate and the natural life to occur? So these units would be a living, breathing break wall twist and turn, throw the waves back into the ocean. Okay. The federal government did tests on that, and they found that that thing was so indestructible, it wouldn't crack until it met a half million pounds of pressure. My goodness. So they ended up repurposing it and turning it into a barrier to stop terrorist attacks. So rather than having it be white and orange as it would be as a break wall so that way boaters wouldn't hit it, they had us mold them in black. So they were camouflaged in the water. So if a terrorist wanted to go up to the side of a battleship and blow a hole in it, and they were racing up there, and they didn't see the gate system that was made out of our sphere, yep. they would hit that, their boat would explode. Wow. How long ago was this that you were involved in that project? That was uh, about 12 years ago. And I'm not going to get picked up when I walk out the door and then interrogated for having discussed this. Uh... No, it's all good stuff. <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing. That's really amazing. And it's interesting, you know, North Tonawanda is pretty industrial. I mean, Buffalo itself, just historically, is an industrial town. So, you know, you drive around here, we're right on the Niagara River. In fact, we're, we're sitting in a, a newer conference room that your firm built where you can see the river uh, out the windows. It's beautiful. Um, but the area is pretty industrial. You could go by this factory, sits off the road a little bit. Yeah, I can see the Confer brand from the street, but I wouldn't think twice, right? There are hundreds of buildings like this in a five-mile radius. Uh, and yet here you're creating products that are going all over the world you're, or all over the country. Most homes have them. And uh, you're doing government stuff that's uh, pretty high end. That's amazing. Mm-hmm. And then going back to the most homes had them, some of the innovations that we've made over the years that uh, people will recognize from day to day. My grandfather was responsible for making the living hinge, which 
by today's standards with technology is something awfully simple. All it is is just a thin flange of material that goes between two halves of a toolbox or a tackle box or even a takeout container. Okay. Prior to that, someone was making a tackle box or toolbox. You'd mold the two halves by the metal hinge, fasten them together, and you're looking at all the costs of having two machines running, having an operator do the assembly, buying the metal to do that. Okay. So he came up with this flange in the mid-60s where he could mold it all is one piece. So he had sold off that patent, unfortunately, to the R.W. Grace Company, and then they let it go out to the market. But had he not done that, we'd probably have been making billions upon billions of toolboxes and tackle boxes. And I think that Bob would not have taken my phone call when I said, I'd like to have you on the currency. You'd be, you'd be too important. You'd probably be in a high rise in New York or something <laughs> with a global empire. But that's how long ago did that, how long ago did your grandfather sell that off? Like he developed it. He developed it in the uh, mid 60s when he actually opened up a company prior to this with a partner named Pete Sherman, where all they wanted to do was experimentation in plastics. So it was like innovation kind of stuff. So yes. he really didn't, it sounds like he didn't ever. Um, commercialize it. He, no. he came up with a concept and then sold it. Yes. Oh, interesting. So tell us to that point a little bit about the history of the business. So if your grandfather was uh, more of an inventor, wanted to tinker and come up with ideas, how did this business come to be? Well, it all started back when he got out of World War II. He was working for Norton Laboratories in Lockport, and they were making things such as uh, the handles that you might have on cookware, so they're making injection molded handles on the end of a frying pan or something like that so people wouldn't burn themselves with the conduction of the heat on the metal. And then blow molding started to come about as a means of making consumer goods. But back then, everyone still thought blow molding was only making bottles. So he wanted to do stuff at Norton Labs, and they said, nah, we don't want to go in that direction. Okay. So he went out and got his buddy Pete Sherman to open up air mold. So they used that as an experimentation shop for a few years. And then he went on his own and opened airlock plastics. When he did that, it was custom molding. Someone come to us with an idea. He'd make it. That lasted under his control for maybe two or three years. He brought on business partners. The business partners then outvoted him and said, take your little machine and leave. We're going to run the rest of the company. Oh, no. What, so, what, what motivated that? Like what... Was there something that they wanted that he didn't want to do? Like, what, why did they push him out the door? They wanted total control, okay. and they wanted ownership of anything that he created intellectually. Uh, so they wanted domination of his patents and ideas. They wanted to own him, essentially. Yes. Yeah. So when he opened up Confer Plastics, he said he was going to open up as Confer Plastics because he wanted it to be family-owning only and no partners because, theoretically— a family member shouldn't stick it to another family member. This is this is true in theory, although <laughs> yes. anybody that has siblings uh, grows up knowing that sometimes <laughs> it doesn't go that way. But yeah, yeah, no, you're right. And he actually leveraged the farm. So you always hear the old stories, oh, somebody leveraged a farm to do that. He actually did because we had the family farm because he was a farmer as well as a manufacturer. And my family farmed until I was 10 years of age. What kind of farming? Don't mean to interrupt. But it was uh, uh, grains. They were doing uh, okay. corns and wheat, sure. and they had a little bit of a couple of pigs and some cows. Okay. And they yeah. did a lot of that, and then it became too much to manage the farm and the factory at the same time. So they got out of that when I was 10. But it was a, uh, a good leverage of the farms. And even back then in the 1970s, he said, you know what? Let's make swimming pool ladders out of plastic. So that's kind of a weird little niche that's been going back for decades. So a few years from now, we'll be celebrating 50 years because I know we'll make it that far. Sure. So we were founded in 73, and it's been a lot of success since then. And just after the company had opened up. He had opened it up with my father, Doug, who still works here every single day. He says he's retired, but his idea of retirement is taking too few hours of work a day. And that's so something. He's here and he's 
busting his butt, and he's he's great for us. How old is your dad? Not to not to put you on the spot, but uh, or just general general terms. He was born in 1950. Okay, so all right. Um, it's inter- I asked that because uh, you may know a company called Ceiling Devices in in Lancaster, New York, which is also outside of Buffalo. And um, I, I interviewed the owner there. His name is Terry Galanis Jr. But his father started the company, Terry Galanis Sr., who is now 101 years old. Oh. And Terry Jr. brings his father into the office every day. So before we sat down and had our interview, like you and I are doing, this was a few weeks ago, uh, he invited me to sit down and have a cup of coffee with him and his dad. And I sat there with two generations, 101 and Terry Jr., 72. And I got to speak to these gentlemen. It just blew my mind. And it was such a blessing to just see how much they loved each other, how much camaraderie, and the devotion of Terry Jr. to his father. And um, and I think he brings him into the office because I don't think his father is involved in the day-to-day at all. I'm confident. But I think it's just to keep his father stimulated, active. He loved the business, and it's just a way for him to be close to his dad. Yeah, and so. it's... It's a neat ideal to have that family business. A lot of people, uh, they wonder how we would deal with the uh, emotions. How would you deal with uh, the existing friendships or relationships you had as father and son? Everything changes a little bit in the workplace. Sure. But we still go back to being strong on love and sure. being father and son, and that's the same sort of relation they have, and it's it's good to see that. That's awesome. Well, tell me a little bit about your journey into the business. Did you just work here ever since you were a kid, or was there some transition where your dad said, hey, Bob, I want to have you come work for me? What, what did that look like? I used to uh, mess around as a kid, come here on the weekends with my dad and play around in the factory. And then when I went to uh, college at SUNY Brockport, what I would do during the summer breaks and winter breaks was work here and work my way through the business. So I was actually a machine operator, starting right there at the production floor, learning how to run the materials, how to uh, trim the plastics, how to package them, and do all of that. So I understood every facet of the operation. So after getting out of there, I got out of there in uh, three years. So I graduated in three years just so I could get in here and get what into did, the excitement. What did you study? It was uh, business administration. Okay. Well, you were motivated three years. Yep. It was tough. It was uh, the last semester I actually had 21 credits, so it made it difficult. You probably had a great social life at the time. Oh, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And from there, I started working on the setups. So I would do uh, the configurations and the molds, the tooling, and then from there, shop floor management. So I understood every facet of the business. So that way, I understood the struggles people might have. Mm -hmm. And I would also understand where someone could be BSing me. Sure. So that way I yeah, cover all those job. pieces. Yeah, I know. Yeah. Yep. Huh. What part of the business do you tend to gravitate to or identify with most closely? I would say most closely would be the day-to-day operations in terms of shop plant management. Okay. Whereas I try to look at my world as being everything that happens within the building. Mm-hmm where I allow uh, a greater free will to my sales team Mm -hmm. working with our customers and going out and selling product outside of the building. Mm -hmm. So I'm focusing on everything inside because there's just so many moving pieces and making sure everyone's on the right page and all that so we can ultimately satisfy the needs of the customers that my sales guys go out and find. Sure. And and then I'll back up a little bit. You talk about your dad, you know, your grandfather and your grandfather and father work together. Now your father, uh, you, you know, you and your sister are now the owners of the business, but your dad's coming in and, and spending time working here, which is really nice. 
Uh, it can be nice. I know sometimes the, the, the younger generations, like, you know, we wish dad would let us do our job, but it doesn't sound like that's the case. No. It sounds like it's healthy. What was that transition of ownership like? If you can talk about that, you don't have to get into anything that's proprietary, but I'm always curious about those kinds of discussions. You know, did your dad say, hey, someday this is going to be yours? Or was there this event that kind of made you guys sit down and say it's time to change ownership? Do you mind sharing some of that? I think the uh, greatest catalyst to having the transition of ownership maybe this early in his life, when he's not yet 70, was uh, maybe the Great Recession. So as uh, the Great Recession hit... 2008, 2009. Yep. Yeah. And uh, it hit us really bad where we had, I would say, two and a half really bad years. Okay. So at that time, our banking partner, M&T, had put personal guarantees on us. And we had never thought that would happen being in a uh, corporate environment, you always think that the corporation itself is its own protection, never sure. going to come back on you. But they had to do that just because the economy was so bad and sure. we were going into the bank lines. And I'll just, so, let me just interject real quick. I mean, most listeners that are owners know exactly what you're talking about. For those that don't own businesses often, the corporation is a protection. It's like a veil. It's its own entity. So let's say the corporation goes south. They don't come after all your personal assets because it's the business that failed. When they ask for a personal guarantee, they're saying, hey, Bob, you've got $50,000, $100,000 in equity on that house. We want you to sign that over. So if things don't go right, we get to cash you out on every level, take all the money we can get from you personally and from the business. So that's the bank saying we're nervous about the prospects of this business. Yes. Okay, sorry. Go ahead. I just want to clarify for listeners. And then coming out of the recession we started to do extremely well. We're still doing very well. And we did so well that M&T did something that I would say most banks wouldn't do. They removed the personal guarantee. Oh, nice. Okay. Most banks would keep somebody hooked into that forever. Mm-hmm. But they said, okay, you've held up your end yeah, of the why bargain. Why give that up once you got it, right? Yes. Okay. So that was a very good. So we, we appreciated that. And just because of uh, the way the economy is or could be any given time, my dad said, you know what, as long as we're doing well, now is the time to get out and hand over the reins and keep on doing well and get out at a good time, And mm-hmm. even though he's still with us sure. every single day. Sure. And that's an asset. You know, often, even if it's not a family member, you buy a business, you kind of want the seller to stick around, show me the ropes. I mean, you've been working in the business from day one, but there's so much institutional knowledge wrapped up in, in a person that's been running it. Uh, you hate to lose that right away. And uh, as long as you're able to do what you need to do, but they're there to help you when you need that help, it's the best of both worlds. And it's good because we have a, a very small management team. We don't have a lot of overhead in terms of uh, what some people might consider in other organizations to be bureaucracy, mm-hmm. where it's just a very small crew of just, I would say, six of us running the show Okay, as the the primaries in terms of uh, sales management, production management, and working with money and things like that. So that very small crew then oversees the form in direct relation to the machine operators and the general workforce. So it's always basically like an open-door policy where people can come in, work with us, talk to us, where know everyone's names, everyone knows us. So yeah. it's not like there's a protection in the office and we don't go out and see people. It's We're all one team. Sure. That's good. I want to kind of... Carry that theme a little further. I'm going to read something from your website. It's a little long, so for listeners, it just take a minute. But I want to read something. It's called the People of Confer Plastics. It's uh, it's on your website. You can folks can read it themselves. But um, 
And when I read that, I'd just like to get you to react to it because I thought this was really interesting. So it says, when you buy a U.S.-made Confer Plastics product, you are acting as an economic driver, doing your part to employ your fellow Americans. Consider the number of people you impact with your purchase. It takes eight people to make a 7,200 swimming pool ladder. That must be a a designated product line. So it takes eight people. It takes 10 people to make a 7,000 pool ladder. It takes 12 people to make a step one step. It takes 13 people to make a curved step system. Those are just the direct jobs at the plant related to those goods. There are still many more folks who design the products, market them, set up machines to produce them, bring material to the machines, ship the goods, and much more. In total, more than 250 people work here. Think about that. 250 families are impacted by the purchases you make. And it goes on. I won't read the whole thing, but it says those wage earners earn good money, receive excellent health insurance benefits, take paid vacations, and they live their version of the American dream. For them, that might mean buying a car or home, putting their kids through college, investing in their own small business, purchasing a camp or saving for their retirement. We are honored that many of our coworkers look at this as a career and not just a job. The average coworker has nearly 10 years experience and so far 30 people have joined the coveted 20-year club. And uh, I'll go on. I'll kind of jump down. Our workforce is also represented by seven different countries of birth, and we take great pride in working with and helping 40 Burmese refugees who came from horrible conditions in refugee camps after being displaced by civil war in Myanmar. And um, we, in essence, you, through your purchases, give them a chance to overcome those horrible experiences and enjoy all the greatness that the America that America has to offer. So you go on and on, and at the end, you just say, "So thank you, thank you for buying our pool and spa products and supporting your neighbors in the U.S. economy." I think that it was just a remarkable statement that you made, and I just like to get you to respond to that. Uh, just what was the thinking behind that, and why is it on your website? The thinking was uh, to help put things into perspective. We give a lot of tours here. It could be uh, high school kids, college students, could be even adults. We have uh, organizations like Leadership Niagara come through here. You might have roadie clubs and organizations like that. And everyone, when they come in here, they comment um, how many people are in this building. Like you had mentioned, drive by this building. It just looks like a, a big blue shell sitting the out there. Yeah. And you don't know how many people are in it, what's going on there. So when they go on these tours... And they think about the clothing they're wearing, the cell phones they might have, the uh, entertainment goods they might have at home. They think about all the hands that went in to make that. So I thought, you know what, because that's always a recurring theme on the tour, why don't I project that out so everyone knows exactly how many hands are touching product and making things happen? Because a dollar spent on American-made goods is always a dollar well spent, whether it's from us or our competition or anyone that's making things here in the States, because we're keeping neighbors employed. We're keeping communities humming along. We're uh, getting the uh, roads paved, getting the uh, library stock, the schools properly funded, all because of U.S. manufacturing. And when you look at the impact beyond that, as I mentioned on that, uh, that webpage, is the impact that it has on personal lives. Mm. So what we use as a, a gauge, and it's it's almost funny to put it this way, is we like to look out the window and see all the cars out there. So when we look at those cars, that's a reminder of all those car payments, all the mortgages, all the retirement plans, all the vacations, and then all the people in the plant that need all of that. So we look at what we do as being necessary to help them live the American dream because everyone's going to have a totally different American dream. Some will want to start businesses. Some will be uh, happy just taking uh, multiple vacations a year. 
others want to uh, see their kids flourish more than them. And then you bring the American dream to those who weren't born in America, which would be the refugees that got a really large Burmese population in Buffalo. They were uh, displaced by civil war. They were brought to the states. And the federal government said, uh, we're going to put you in Fort Wayne, Indiana. We're going to put you in Buffalo. So they took people from the jungle and they put them in Buffalo of all places. Makes, makes perfect sense, especially yes. in February. <laughs> so it's, it's a shock to their system. And it's uh, been a lot of good growth between us and them in terms of understanding. And what I use is a really good gauge of how we help them with uh, culture and coming here to the United States and trusting people. Prior to uh, them becoming fully acclimated to what happens at Confort Plastics, when they had just started here, a lot of the Burmese migrants had actually kept their money in their mattresses. Literally. Yes. Rather than going to the bank because the banks that they knew back home, they couldn't trust, whether government run or they were corruptly run. So they wouldn't see that money again. So they've gone from that to putting the money in the bank and now putting it into 401ks. Every time we have 401k open enrollment, they're jumping all over that. Mm. Now, contrast that to six years ago or seven years ago, they weren't trusting banks. That's a remarkable turnaround. Sure. That's because we help them focus on what we have here in the States for them, what we have here at Confort Plastics, give them quality of life to live the American dream. So now they can live it and they can help their kids live it. It's interesting, Bob. You know, I feel like sometimes there's a false dichotomy and the dichotomy, the false dichotomy for me is, well, you can either do good or you can make money. And what I'm inferring from what you're saying is you're trying to do both. So on one hand, you're making enough money and and the business has enough health that the bank is coming to you saying, uh, we can take those personal guarantees off. We're fine. Which, you know, I had an attorney once tell me, Mike, there are no friends around the money table, right? The bank just doesn't do good deeds just for the sake. I mean, God bless the banks. I like banks and I like most bankers. Um, but they don't do that just out of the goodness of their heart. There's something that they see in the business. They go, look, there's a lot of health here. We don't need this. Let's, let's take that off them. Let's show that we're a good partner. We want to be at the table. These guys are doing great. We don't want you going to look for somebody else that is willing to do this for no personal guarantee. On the other hand, we're, there's the story that you tell on, on that website page I read and this information about the Burmese and how you're helping them uh, acclimate, learn the value of our culture, be able to take advantage of the society that we have to offer in ways that benefit them. Uh, So there's this false dichotomy, in my opinion, that people try to do that you think you can only do one or the other. You're a good example of trying to do both. I guess my question after that long observation is, what motivates that for you? Why, Why do you care about that? What about is this something that's already been in the business that you inherited from your family? Is this something that Bob brings to the table, this kind of lens that you look at the people that work here through? I think it's uh, the culture of family, how strong the ties are that we have family working together here. And it's something that we've always done. Even going back in time when we first started, whether it was my grandfather giving out loans, whether it was just giving them cash outright and doing the little things like that. And you get a lifetime of doing things like that. And all those little pieces go together, make a really strong foundation. And then we look at how important the American dream has been for us. The way I look at how we live the American dream here, it's the four C's. So the first C would be the converse. So the American dream of actually leveraging that farm and taking his ideas and turning it into physical goods, that's that's pretty fun and that's, that's exciting. And we want people to live that. So when we go to the second C, which would be our coworkers, helping them 
live that too and get the most out of the American experience that they can. And then going to the third C, which would be customers. And that's actually twofold, where we have the end consumer who's going to get our kayak swimming pool ladder or the uh, spot cabinetry. They're going to be playing in the water, doing fun things. So they're living the American dream in their own way. But also there's the other customer who is the custom client, the contract client. They're going to come to us with a raw idea. We help them transform that into a finished good. They put it to market and they reap the benefits of all of us working together. And then from there, we go to the fourth C, which is community. So we couldn't exist without community because granted, we're paying the taxes for the roads and the schools and whatnot, but the community as well is also investing in that. Yes. So we reap the benefits of that. So we want to make sure that we give back. So whether it's helping uh, new Americans, it could be uh, donating to different causes, mm-hmm. could be opening up. We opened up a couple of scholarships in the past couple of years, one at SUNY Brockport and one at Alfred University. And also we give uh, gift cards to say around 180 different organizations every single year so they can raffle them off and do things like that. So there's a whole bunch of different connections all interrelated to that American dream because you'll look out at the outside of our building, we've got a metal American flag stamped to it, and then we've got out in the factory American flags on both ends of the plant. So it's really the driver of what we do because we live in a really great country with a lot of freedoms and a lot of economic opportunity. If we can take capitalism to do good, that's good for us because, like you mentioned, it's a tough struggle to manage doing good and being capitalist because I still have to be a capitalist pig because I got to make sure that that bottom line's there. Well, and that, is that really being, I mean, I know you're tongue in cheek, but is it really being a pig? It's like a free market. You've got to be profitable. Like if as a father, if you don't go, let's say you don't own a company, but let's say as a father, you're really talented, but you don't go out there and leverage your talents then you're not bringing a paycheck home, which means your kids are struggling. You're really not yes. doing your job. But if you go out there and you leverage your skills, you make as much as you can that's reasonable, you're profitable, then your family benefits. And I think I think the business is similar. It's like you've got to be profitable. You can't exist without it. Yeah, and, and I don't – it's like people always say profit's a bad word. I don't think it is because profit allows things to happen. By having a profit here, we can – invest in, uh, say, bonuses. We can yep. invest in new machinery, yep. new product lines to expand opportunity, create more jobs, and then also give people uh, the extra cash of bonuses, potential overtime, and things like that. And then when I look at some of our customers who came to us, they should be able to make a profit too, because right. when they do, they can invest in new molds so we can make more products for them. So profit is a it's a good word. It can be virtuous if, you know, if, if I was looking at your parking lot, you mentioned the cars, and I saw a bunch of rust bucket beaters out there, then I'm thinking, okay, yeah, the Confer family's doing really good, but I don't know about the other families down there. I mean, yeah, they're working, but but I see a lot of new vehicles. I see a nice paved driveway. I see people with clean, nice clothing. I mean, this is, I understand, you know, I'm not going to tighten bolts on a machine and make a quarter of a million a year plus a month of paid vacation. I'd have to work on Wall Street and be a trader to even think about that. But on the other hand, it's clear that you're paying competitive fair wages, that people are doing good work, that that, it's a virtuous thing. So I guess um, the proof is in the pudding. It's what do you do with those profits? And I think people make the mistake, like you're saying, they just think profits are evil. It's really what do you do with them? And you don't have to be a missionary and just give it all away. I mean, right. everybody can benefit. That's a great thing about what you're doing. You're creating wealth and creating value. And that's the beauty of our system here in America. Yeah, and profits, uh, 
people will say, oh, you look at the uh, tax cuts that have come down in the federal government and how that benefits large corporations only or the evil corporations. Yeah. What it's really benefiting are the small businesses like ours. How so? Because if you look at those who were the large corporations might be considered to be evil. They already knew the loopholes. They weren't the ones paying taxes, but it was companies like ours that are paying the taxes. And I look at the benefit for us will be rather significant in the tax cuts. And it's going to be to the tune of a few hundred thousand dollars a year. Wow. So what we're going to be able to do with that for the first time in, I would say, 26 years, within the next six months, we'll probably be debt-free for the first time in 26 years. Because we've always accumulated debt in a certain way because we have the seasonality of our business, because sure. we're making summer products that we have to make in the fall to be able to sell them in the spring. And also for the fact that we've invested in so many machines in the past 15, 20 years, we can't buy those machines outright. We have to lean on the bank to provide yep. us the funds to do so. Yep. And in order to reap the benefits from that, from the uh, tax credits, now we get extra cash that can finally pay off that, and then we'll not be beholden to the bank or any debt at all, which is a really happy feeling. And my guest today is Bob Confer. He is the president of Confer Plastics. He's co-owner along with his sister. We're going to take a quick break, but before we do that, I just want to encourage you to check out Bob's company. You can check out Confer Plastics. Just go to their website. I will put a link in the show notes, but you can go to C-O-N-F-E-R-Plastics.com. Some great content like the piece that I read to you. You can see some of the products that they make, read a little bit more about the company. And I would also encourage you, check out Bob on Twitter. Now, this is not an official Confer Plastics account, but Bob and I kind of met each other via Twitter. He's a really prolific Twitter uh, user, but great, great stuff about nature and Gasport, which is the community he lives in, and his family and school and Boy Scouts. It's just a great, if you want an all-around good American, uh, positive, uplifting Twitter account, I would encourage you to just look for at Bob Confer and uh, do, do yourself a favor and follow. Guys, I'll be right back with more with our friend Bob Confer in just a moment. Guys, I hope you're enjoying today's show. I've got to tell you, I really love putting this podcast together. There's something really special about meeting these business owners, hearing their stories, and then getting those stories out to you, the community that makes up the currency. Thank you so much for being a listener. Thank you for helping me make this podcast so successful. Now, look, if you are a business owner and you're trying to scale your business, you're trying to grow, maybe introduce new products, maybe capture new markets, or just capture more share in your existing market, I'd love for you to get in touch. I'd love to help you. You know, I'm a brand and marketing strategist. I help the owners of private businesses transform their marketing from an overhead function, something that costs them money, to a revenue generating machine, something that brings money into the business. Every dollar you spend should generate exponential return. And so I love working with folks that own businesses to help them do that transformation. If that's something you think you could use some help with, let's at least have a discussion. Get in touch. Like I said, my email address is mike at mikegaston.com. You can also go to my website, mikegaston.com. There's a contact form there, but get in touch and let's get a discussion started. Now, guys, let's get back to today's show. And we're back. I'm Mike Gaston, the host of The Currency. Thanks so much for being with us today. We're with Bob Confer. He is the president and co-owner 
of Convert Plastics. Bob, welcome back. Thanks for having me. Yeah, this is a lot of fun. I'm really enjoying this conversation. Love your vision, um, and I love your appreciation for the American dream. And I I like that it goes beyond just kind of a rah-rah patriotism, which I'm fine with that. Like, I'm not embarrassed to love America, but I'm married to someone from another country, so I'm aware of kind of international perspective. I know Americans get a bad rap. But I love how concretized, I guess, your excitement about the country is. And what I mean by that is it's not just, hey, I love America. You're seeing day in and day out the fruits of what America provides, the opportunities that it provides, not just for you, but for other folks. And so I appreciate you sharing that. Let's take a moment, if you don't mind sharing with us, like what's been one of the biggest challenges? You, you've owned the company. How, like, how long have you been at the helm? I've been uh, at the helm for uh Two years now, but I've been around here since uh, 1993. Okay. And it's seen a lot of things come and go and a lot of obstacles come up throughout the times. And I would say uh, some of the biggest issues we face, it's really rather than one, it's probably a two-pronged item where it would be threats from abroad and a threat from home. And we can start with the home one first because most people don't think there's going to be a threat at home. But right. I look at New York State as being an obstacle to us. It's no, the- <laughs> I thought that New York was manufacturer and business-friendly, great tax regime. <laughs> no, it, it's, it's depressing sometimes. I mean, you know, I know you love it as your home, so yes. you are a New Yorker for sure. But yeah, please elaborate, though. It, it, it's a uh, struggle sometimes to uh, run a business in New York State just for the fact that the cost structure and then the regulatory structure is so significant. The cost structure really appears in our power bills. Being that we're such a big user of electricity, even though this building is 110,000 square feet and it doesn't look so big from the road, we're using as much electricity as all the homes in, say, the village of Middleport times three. Because of the equipment you're running is yep. huge. Because we got to create that temperature. We need to melt the material to like 400 degrees. And then we got the feed screws to keep the plastic going and running those presses. So it's a lot of electricity. So you're we're like paying. a small town. Yep. Yeah. It's, it's actually scary sometimes. Huh. And it's. Uh, twice what our competitors pay for electricity. So our power bill is double what it should be when you look at the competition. When you say competitors, you're talking about domestic competitors? Yep. I'm looking at, say, Ohio, Indiana, Utah, Tennessee, places like that. So we're paying that much more in electricity. And then you throw the regulatory burden in there. You look at all the different little rules and regulations that have appeared, especially in the past uh, three years. It's to the point now that when we quote products to some of our long-standing customers to show them that we're not sticking it to them in higher prices, we'll actually put with that quote some of uh, the newspaper articles that show here's what's coming down the pike in New York State because we have to justify that increase and mm-hmm. show that it's not something we did. So we have to overcome that really high cost of doing business. And I look at it as being, I know this is going to sound extravagant and it always makes people say, why didn't you leave New York State? But when I look at the cost of doing business in New York on issues controlled by Albany, electricity, insurance, taxes, things like that, we pay on any given year around three quarters of a million dollars more than our competition would. So we're throwing away $750,000 a year for the benefit of doing business in New York. Yeah, the benefit, quote unquote. Yes. Uh, now, your com- competition, are they similar, comparable in size, scope? There's a, I would say two-thirds of our shop is competing against machinery 
that would be across dozens, if not hundreds, of manufacturers in the United States and Canada when it comes to smaller, mid-sized products. When it comes to larger products, we're competing against a very select few in the United States, maybe a, a half dozen or less, and that's what we do to overcome New York State. So by going large, it's basically go big or go home. So by doing things very large, we do things that other manufacturers can't. So we make these machines that are so massive. Our biggest machine here can drop around 150 pounds of plastic. It could make at its max a part that could be about 15 feet long. Most companies, when they want to dump plastic from the head of a machine, to them a really big one is going to be about 35 to 50 pounds. Oh, my goodness. So we're multiple Multiples, yeah. So by doing that and having that technology, having the know-how, of the people here that's allowed us to overcome any discompetitive uh, disadvantages that we might have here in New York state. And then also that helps us in regard to overseas competition where we get hammered all the time from Mexico and China. And it's a real issue. One thing that my father had invented back in the 1970s was a flexible fuel funnel. So everyone has those in their garage. You might see them in auto shops. So it would be the thing that you're dumping oil into your tank or gas into your tank with that flexible funnel. He invented that. And that was an outcome of, I had mentioned earlier, of working on the farm. So he was a farm boy back then, and they were all made out of metal. So the metal would corrode, flake. You get metal inside your fuel tank. Oh, sure. And you don't want that to happen because then your tractor's ruined. So that's just when Time for Plastic started. He said, why don't we make these out of plastic? So he made, I bet you, millions of them over a 14-year period because that was how long the patent was the federal government granted us. So it wasn't like a indefinite lifetime one. It was 14 years. Once that 14 years was up, we lost all of that to Mexico and China because we couldn't keep up because the products are so small they can go in a shipping container. Now, when we're making a kayak on our really big machines, nobody wants to ship from overseas air. So when you look at a kayak, in theory, it's all air. If you think of the volume, yes. yeah, you've got a skin and then it's just all open space. Yep. Yeah. And that's what's filling up the shipping container. So by going large and not focusing on fuel tanks, toys, things like that, then we can make sure that New Yorkers are gainfully employed. Mm. So what you're what you're telling me is um, there's kind of been like a, a specialization on one level, meaning you've identified certain kinds of products that give you an advantage. These large products that are hard to—I mean, you can ship them, you just can't ship them cost effectively, right? And then the other thing you're doing is uh, you focus on capabilities. So you've got sounds like you've tooled the plan up so that you can do some things that very few other folks in your space can do. Yeah, and it took some. Uh Serious ingenuity and some serious investment in that large machine I mentioned, our very largest of them, that machine could not be produced in the United States or overseas as a single unit. Looking at the rest of our factory, you go around and you might see uh, Davis Standard or Cowtex being recurring name brands on our machines. We would go to them. They make it all as one unit, send it to us. And these are blow molding machines. Yes. Okay. Yep. And being that our needs had become so massive in terms of what we wanted to do with kayaks and what we wanted to do beyond kayaks, because going on just a side note on that, the way we look at it is sooner or later, that market could get saturated in kayaks. So what's the next biggest project? So we want to make sure that the machine we were getting would address whatever 
2025 or 2050 might look like around here at the factory. So we wanted something so massive that we can make something bigger than a kayak in terms of length and something at least three and a half, four feet wider. So we made sure it was oversized because we don't know what the future is, but we want to be ready for the future. Why do I feel like you're going to be making plastic cars for Uber or Lyft or something like that? Or massive cylinders, massive tanks, wall panels. The sky's the limit with that. Okay. So we did that by making that very large machine, but going back to those other manufacturers who make the machines for us, they couldn't do it because it was just so big. So we had to have it be a Frankenstein's monster where we had a company in Taiwan make the head which extrudes the plastic and also the extruder that feeds it. Well, we had to have a company in Ohio make the press and the other structure which holds the molds. And then doing all that, we had to provide our expertise to do the layout, the design, how everything functions, and then we had to help them develop computer systems and controls. So this thing is not a a one-off from one company. It's a one-off from multiple companies working together. And it took a good 18 months from the initial concept and idea and all the talking through to get to materials finally showing up here at the plant. And then the uh, rigging company put it together in all of 21 days once all that material and everything was here. So I got a couple of questions around that. That's a, that's fantastic. What is, uh, and I just think of the risk, but we'll talk about that in a second. Is a, a piece of equipment like that, like what... What are you investing, not even in the Frankenstein machine, but just in a good-sized piece of equipment? What are you looking at? Is that six figures of equipment? Yep, even for something that a blow-molder would consider to be a typical machine, like say something, a 20-pound head, drop 20 pounds of material and make a a small, medium-sized part, you're still looking at about a million, million a quarter for that. A million dollars, million a quarter to buy that piece of equipment, get it set up. So now yep. we're talking about something that can do 140, 150 pounds. Yep. And, and you're having to go to multiple people. So you've got to work with engineers to design this thing. You've got to get companies to work together from other countries like Taiwan and Ohio, I think you said. Yes. And Ohio's not its own country, but you know what I mean by that. And then you've got to bring it in here. So the question for me is, I go to the bank and I want to buy a car. And they see the car, they go, yeah, we know what that car is, and we know it's reliable, and yeah, your credit's pretty good. Sure, we'll give you a loan. You're telling me this thing's a million bucks. You probably didn't just write a check. This had to, I mean, you're not telling me that this was probably multiple. I don't even, I'm not going to put you on the record, but I know it was expensive. How do you finance something like that? Because if I'm the bank, I'm saying, gee, Bob, I'd like to help you, but I don't even know if this thing's going to work when you get it. It right? was because a- it's. You're just kind of making this up as you go, essentially. Like, how does the bank, how did you get financing for that? It's having a really good relationship with the bank. We've been blessed with a relationship manager. Yep. (laughs) (laughs) And he actually knows us in and out. So I make an employee newsletter that they'll get every single week. I actually mail that to him. So he knows everything that's going on in the plant. So he knows the stories. He knows why we're making products, what we're doing. So those little nuances he understands. He'll check up on us uh, about four or five times a year. We'll have lunch. We'll talk about every aspect of business. Sure. So he knows our customers by the name of the client, the name of the principals there. So he has an understanding of that. So he knew that the potential existed to expand the kayak line. So he said, you know what? The bank can do that because we know that you're going to have a good business volume. And we did. And uh, that machine's been in operation for about two and a half years now. And it's idle right now. It has been for about a month. But a month from now, it's going to start right back up and making kayaks again for next season. What, uh, how, how about for you? So there's the, um, the, the bank manager has confidence because you've been good at communicating, but great relationship. 
What about you? I mean, let, let's just assume you can, you know, let's say it's $2 million to do this project. Maybe it's probably more, but whatever. Let's say it's $2 million. You got to be sweating bullets a little bit thinking when all this stuff shows up and the riggers put it together, like, I hope this works. And, and also, did you have a bunch of contracts already lined up, Sue? Did you know you could get that machine going out of the gate? Yeah, we we hoped we couldn't, yeah, and, see, and it did. This it, is this is the beauty of American business. Yeah, because it's risk. Yeah, it, I mean, it, there's risk in starting up businesses, and there's risk in growing businesses, and it's considerable risk. So I always had that fear of uh, what happens if it doesn't work out, because. As I mentioned, it's Frankenstein's monster. You got all those working parts from different companies, yeah. hoping they communicate properly, right. hoping they work well. Right. And how do you get it fixed, especially if uh, Taiwan's in a different business? Well, I didn't state think of that. If it goes down, who services the thing? Yes. Yeah. So we wanted to make sure that it was serviceable by mostly by our guys. So we want to make sure it was easy use technology that we understood and we could work with, and it worked out well and it started very well. And that's because I've got a, a great team around here. From uh, those who are in production to our design engineer to my dad and everyone we're working with, throw all those ideas in there and just those constant conversations, it, it gave us hope going up to it. But there's always that thought in the back of your mind where you're yeah. up at night saying, man, I hope this works because yeah. it's a risk. That is something, Bob. Well, congratulations. Obviously, it did work. You hit the ground running and... And you've been able to dominate that. And, it, and I think it helps. You know, you, we talked a little bit about, you mentioned your sales team. You probably have a great sales team where you could say, guys, here's, we're going all in, but we can't do this without you guys making sure that we've got opportunities to use this piece of equipment. So I'm sure you're pulling the whole company together on this a project like that saying, okay, we, how do we make this thing work? My mind's spinning a little bit. The <laughs> audience could probably tell I'm just blown away by that, that project. And I'm sure there's even more there if... If we want to spend time on it. Tell me a little bit about what you're most proud of. It can be, you know, or, or the biggest victory. I, clearly, this is a victory. I think right there we've, we've touched on one. And it doesn't have to be from the couple of years that you've been at, you know, president of the company, but you've been involved in the business for quite a while. But as you've been working here at Confer, what's one of the things that you're most proud of? I would say overcoming the recession. Because that pit that we went into was so massive and so deep, and you wonder, oh, am I going to get out of that? It's stressful because you wonder, when does the economy itself right itself? And you can't prognosticate. That was a tough no. one. Yeah. And then you don't know how long it's going to go, and then what happens when the funds go out, and what do we do for personnel? And, and it's, yeah, it was just a, a, a constant stressful struggle wondering how we're going to get out of it. What do you credit the, the the rise out of it for your business? I mean, you could say, well, the economy got better and we just grew with the economy, but it sounds to me you did something to navigate. How did you guys get out? Even during the recession, we still bought our other large machine, which is uh, still one of the largest in North America. When you look at our very large machine, it's probably one of the six biggest in the whole world when you take press size and head size. The one that we had prior to that, we bought during the recession, and that was a very large machine, drops 100 pounds of plastics, and that's when we started making kayaks in volume. So that was a gamble to take during the recession, saying, you know what, we're just going to keep on going big because of either go big or go home. So by doing that, we got into a lot more kayaks and expanded that dramatically. And that was a product that actually benefited from the recession because it came to the point that families wanted to get their kids and the moms and dads on the water, but they didn't want to spend the money on a fancy boat or the fuel Which to run it. Six figures. Yes. Easy. And then the maintenance and winterizing and all that. When you look at a kayak, when we can make a blow-molded kayak, they can go to a tractor supplier, Dick's Sporting Goods, get one for $250 or less. They can put the whole family of four on the water for 1000 bucks. Yeah, you have a family, you go, hey, uh, let's do a staycation. 
yes. to throw a couple of kayaks on the top of the van and go up to, you know, if I'm in Rochester, I'm going to the Bay on Lake Ontario. You got all kinds of stuff here in Buffalo and all throughout the country. It could be a farm pond, but you can knock around and have a good time. And that staycation wow. is why we also see uh, the pool and spa industry, even though we've been a player, a major player in it since the 1970s, why it grows every single year for us. It's because, especially during the recession, nobody wanted to go on a vacation, but they still wanted to have fun for the family. Mm-hmm. So rather than buying that one trip to Disney, let's buy a swimming pool or a hot tub. Yeah. So we've got to outfit that. So... The recession led to that, and then once they got out of the recession, consumers started to say, you know what? We like all these nice things. Sure. So they added to that level. Yep. Yeah. Let me ask you, because I, I, and this isn't to, to put you on the spot, but I look at my own life, and sometimes I can say, well, here's why this worked out. It's kind of like in hindsight. So were you folks looking, saying, where do we think people will be spending time? Is the kayak story a hindsight? Like in looking back, it was fortuitous because, or at the time, did you say, we think kayaks might be an opportunity because of the dynamics in the market right now? Yeah, we looked at it as being a uh, greater opportunity from that which existed because we had been making eight-foot-long kayaks, which are basically an entry-level kayak. We're making that for uh, one firm. But then it seems that most marketplaces want one that's about 11 and a half feet. So, so we had already to go, felt some yep. need there. So we jumped right into that and managed to get it filled up with some good jobs and really good relationships with kayak manufacturers and sure. fill that machine capacity right up. That's amazing. You know, I, it's, uh, I have a buddy, um, we both came up in sales when we were younger. And, you know, the saying is it's amazing how lucky you are when you're working hard. You know, like yep. as a sales guy, you're like, oh, he got lucky. He landed that big account. Well, what you don't see is he's been grinding for eight months and finally landed that thing. And, uh, and it sounds like that's part of the case in the sense that you got lucky in the sense that like, People wanted to do these more simple, cost-effective ways to have recreation. Yes. Um, But you were already there. You already understood the market, and you were driving in saying, what can we do more? Where are the opportunities? How can we grow? And you're doing that hard work. And then, lo and behold, it was like a perfect opportunity. At the same time, that machine went in the marketplace because that machine, being the second largest of machines, was a used machine. A competitor got out of that line of business, got it for a half million bucks. Wow. Even though it was a gigantic piece of equipment. Compared to our really large machine, once that was all in, it was four and a quarter before we did the infrastructure for the electricity. I knew. I said two million. I thought I'm not even close. I didn't want to put you on the spot, but four and a quarter million. Wow. And that big machine that you got for half a million... Uh, at the same time, the bank is saying to you, we want you to put personal guarantees on the business. So literally, you guys bet the farm on this. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> you literally bet the so farm. Quite a few times we've done that during the life of the company yeah, initially sure. and then during the recession. That's awesome. Uh, thanks for sharing that, Bob. Hey, I want to just shift gears a little bit. We'll take a little bit of a detour. I mentioned at the half uh, about your Twitter account and encourage people to follow. I love your tweets. I love your online presence. What's great is, I mean, you, you might talk about the business once in a blue moon, but this isn't like um, you're not retweeting a bunch of uh, articles that I could find somewhere else. You're not ranting and raving about politics. I'm sure you have political ideas. We talked a little bit about New York State and the economy. I think we share some of those uh, frustrations and pains. Um, but you've got such a great Twitter presence. And I'm just wondering, how do you find the time to bring so much of your life? Because you'll talk about scouting or maybe the school that your kids are involved in or some wonderful event that's happening in a neighboring town of Gasport or a hike in Letchworth uh, and also run this business because you seem to be doing both really well. And I'm confused how that works. I, I want to selfishly learn the trick. So what I do is uh, say there's something that catches my attention. Yeah. 
I'll just, I'm old school. I keep a notebook on me. So I'll write down here, here's something I need to share. So I'll write that down. I have a whole list of here's what I'm going to share for the day. So I've got that laid out as kind of like a to-do list. Okay. So I'll share those ideas. And then something I started uh, back at the end of June was a Nature 365 hashtag. Yeah, it was fantastic. And that one, what I do is I'll, I'll take a picture that I took in the wild, whether it's one of the day or one that I took a few years back, and I'll tell a story about a plant, animal, or place in New York State because maybe too often we might take for granted the little creatures that it might be in our backyard. So sure. even something as lowly as an earthworm gets a highlight of that day so people can learn about it because I want people to go outdoors and enjoy the outdoors. And that's not from me being a guy who makes kayaks and swim pools and getting people outdoors and sure, okay, my business. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's just because of the love that I have for uh, nature and New York State. So even though I will be mowing New York State when it comes to the cost structures, yeah. I really love everything that it offers in terms of uh, natural opportunity from Niagara Falls over here to the Great Lakes, the Finger Lakes, the Adirondacks, the Allegheny oh, Mountains. It's a little bit everything. And it's then really special. Also that Twitter ends up being an extension of my newspaper column. So since uh, 2005, I've okay. written a weekly opinion column for the Niagara Gazette, Lockport Union Sun and Journal, and just a few years ago, the Batavia Daily News picked me up. So okay. it's a opinion column week to week. Could Good be on anything. papers, yeah. Yep. And they don't tell me what to write about. So I go in with it with, here's my idea for the week. It could be talking about issues in public policy. I don't like to, people say, oh, you're a political columnist. No, because I don't like to talk about politics. I'm not focusing on people or party. Mm -hmm. It'll be about public policy, how it impacts us as New York residents or as manufacturers doing business. And then I'll talk about general things in life and the economy. It's variable thing. And people try to say, what kind of bent am I working on? Because some will say, oh, you're conservative, you're libertarian, you're Americanist, who knows what you are. Yeah, And it's it's good because now I've got people from all parties and all walks of life enjoying the column. And right. hate mail is pretty limited nowadays, okay. not like the old days. And people like to hear what I think. And I think that's the discourse that we need a little bit more of out in America. When you look at how divisive that say, a, a Fox News or a CNN can be in terms of determining the bent of people. Mm -hmm. I like to be varied in the ideas that I throw out there. And people who disagree with me on columns always say that I'm reasonable. Where I give them the logic behind it, set the table, and say, here's what we have to do, rather than being incendiary and saying, <laughs> pounding the table and saying, this is what we have to do. Right. Uh, I think you do a great job. And, you know, some some like corporate accounts are vanilla. They just don't want to touch hot topics because it's they don't want to be controversial. I see you willing to in address issues. You know, you're a business owner in New York. You've got some opinions, thoughts. I, I, don't th I can't remember a time that you've mentioned any politicians by name, unless it was a local politician. Maybe something sad happened. There was a car accident. You might bring up like, hey, I have thoughts for so-and-so or I'm, ma I'm making it up. But like you, if there's a personal aspect, like we're part of the community together, you might mention, I can't remember a time where you're criticizing or praising the president. You're just, but a lot of these corporate accounts are very vanilla. You're not vanilla. They're very much like this is Bob Confer. This is what he loves. He cares about yours, his family, the work he does. But on the other hand, you're not seemingly promoting anything other than maybe it goes back to the American dream. Like this is what it looks like to be an American. I don't know if you've thought of this, but it's like, here's a good American. This is just a great guy living a great life, trying to contribute and being a good neighbor. And I, I've appreciated that. So, and it's led to us sitting here today having a, 
Which is nice. Yeah. yeah. Creates relationships and engagement and opportunity and yeah. it, it's good. Are you active on other social media platforms or is Twitter really where you do most of your work? Twitter's almost all of it except when it comes to uh, Facebook, I'll still share the nature things, share sure. my column every week. But I don't go in there and post the random things like I do yeah. throughout the day on Twitter. Yeah. And then also we use uh, Facebook for uh, the company Facebook page. Sure. And then also I use it for a uh, page that I use to promote Gasport. Okay. So it's kind of like a uh, micro news hub for it. So okay. that way anyone who lives there or might be visiting knows what's going on in town, whether yeah. it's a fundraiser or good news, bad news, things like that. And then also use it to manage the... Uh, Facebook page for the Iroquois Trail Council because I'm president of the board for that, which is the Boy, the Scouts, Boy Scout Council, which yeah. serves eastern Niagara County and then the Glow Counties. Okay. So it's a massive rural area with uh, 2,500 Boy Scouts, Cub Scouts, and it's good program. Good. That's awesome. Well, I encourage people, again, check out Bob's Twitter account. Follow him. Uh, very personable online. Great content. Just look for Bob Confer, C-O-N-F-E-R, and uh, give him a shout out. If you do follow him, tell him, I heard you on The Currency, and uh, I can't guarantee you'll follow back. You have to be a nice person, but um, <laughs> check him out. Bob, as we're kind of wrapping up here, I guess my question for you is, what's your vision for the future of the company? You've been at the helm for, for a couple years, a few years now. You're the owner along with your sister. Your dad's still involved in the business, but you've been at this business for most of your most of your working life in one way or the other. What's the future? Where do you see the company going and what's your vision? What I want to do is ensure that we're still always a good corporate citizen. I don't see us expanding the facilities anymore because we've maxed out the grid and the center town. The power grid. Yes. Yeah, okay. And the infrastructure we have internally for that. But we have uh, ample enough machine capacity that I could fill that capacity. And uh, the number of coworkers we have right now ranging anywhere is from around 200 to 230. Mm -hmm. That's a good number to have. You want to stay in that range, not getting any higher than that, because my fear is you get too large. I don't start to recognize people by name and face. I sure. like to know what's going on out there in the plant. I like to know what's going on in their homes. So that way uh, they live the best American dream possible. So by focusing on doing what we do, doing it well, making sure we address the customer's needs. And I think our focus is always going to be on things that put people on the water, in the water, making sure that people have a good time. And it's uh, it's rewarding to do that because when our guys and gals on the plant are building things, they know that when we share the stories of how much fun a, a kid had going to the pool for the first time. Guys, my guest today has been Bob Confer. Bob, thank you so much for joining me on The Currency. Thank you. It was a great discussion. It was fun. Yeah, it was a lot of fun. Thank you. Guys, as I've said, please check out Bob's uh, Twitter account. Just go to Bob Confer on Twitter or go check out their company. And they've got some other uh, platforms there as well. But you can go to their website. Just go to Confer Plastics. Again, I'll put a link in the show notes. But you can go to C-O-N-F-E-R Plastics.com. Read all about this wonderful gem of a company uh, hidden here in North Tonawanda, New York. And if you haven't done so already, if you like stories like Bob's, you want to learn more, then you need to subscribe to The Currency. All you have to do is go to your favorite platform. We're on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher Radio, Google Play, Google Podcasts, anywhere that fine podcasts are provided. Hit that subscribe button and you will get content like this hot and fresh to your device of choice on a weekly basis. Guys, I love you all and I'll catch you in the next episode. Thank you.